Um, it's an absolute joy to be with you this morning. Um, as John said, I've been um, new, new to the South Wales uh, Baptist team, moved over from London. Uh, we moved over in March earlier this year and settling into life in South Wales. So it's nice to be reunited with my good-looking identical twin, Andy. <laughs> indeed, 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 indeed. Um, and John as well in the, in the team here. Um, this isn't the first time I lived in, I've lived in Wales. Um, I went to university in North Wales, in Bangor, uh, and that's where I became a Christian. So I was born in England. This is the... I was born again. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but I was born again in Wales. And um, so coming back for me has been... Um, yeah, has has been has been deeply special for that for that very reason because my kind of my spiritual roots um, are in Wales, North Wales. Um, but my spiritual roots. So when I first became a Christian, um, as I said, didn't grow up going to church particularly, and um, very soon after I became a Christian, met Lindsay, who is now my wife. In fact, it's our wedding anniversary today. But anyway, that was fine. Um, and um, we got together very pretty quickly after that, and I did what she was doing. She'd grown up in a Christian home. What a lot of Christian students were doing at, the, at that point, we would go to the Baptist church in the morning because the preaching was really good, and then we would go to the Pentecostals in the evening. Thank you. One. Hallelujah. Whoop. Um, because they were Pentecostals, and I'd see nothing like this. I'd grown up in rural Suffolk, um, and... Um, I don't think Pentecostals had particularly encroached very much into all of East Anglia, let alone the bit I lived in. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd seen nothing like this. People praying in tongues and dancing and words of knowledge and gifts of prophecy. The expectation every time we came together. that God, by his spirit, would speak through his people. And um, three months after I... Be- uh, became a Christian, gave my life to Jesus. Someone prayed with me. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, prayed in tongues and um, in, the, in my halls of residence. And just, I was don't know if anybody's had a similar experience um, to that, but I was just completely overwhelmed by the love and the presence of God. And I went out of my room and I was running around uh, the grounds of the halls of residence, just um, to use a biblical phrase, leap, leaping and jumping and praising God kind of thing, etc., etc. And so that was my formative. So at the end of our first year, so that was in year one, Lindsay and I decided we ought to commit to one church, not play, sort of play one off against the other. We ought to really be committed to one local church. And so we committed ourselves to the Pentecostal Church, Assemblies of God. And I'm deeply thankful for that. Deeply, deeply thankful for that. Um, and I, even to this day, I, I, I cannot get my head around Christians who um, will go to church But as far as they are concerned, God is some kind of irrelevant, transcendent being out there with no expectation whatsoever that God could, to use a phrase, be an active agent, an active presence in our daily lives today. I couldn't get it then, and I still can't get it now, that from those formative experiences in my life, to be part of a student prayer meeting, praying all night, and... um, Uh, and Yvonne arrived with a broken leg and we gathered around and we prayed for her and then she ended up sort of running around healing, etc. Why do we not see more healings? But God was present and active. 
and has spoken to me and countless friends and sisters and brothers that I have journeyed over with over the years. And I couldn't and still cannot fathom those Christians for whom that is not an active reality. I did um, some academic work quite a few years ago to try and work out what kind of charismatic I was, what kind of Pentecostal charismatic. By the way, I've sort of moved, moved from being a classic Pentecostal to sort of sitting within the evangelical charismatic stream. And I did some work on um, the kind of charismatic I am when I read the Bible. And I've got lots of books uh, by scholarly people about how you read the Bible. Does anybody know the technical... There's a technical word. It begins with H. I'll give you a bit of a head start. Um, it's the technical word for the interpretation of Scripture. This is a moment for someone to shine with their knowledge of a big word. Anybody? Before I come to these pinky and perky on the front row here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. A great name for a 1960s skiffle band, Herman and the Newtics. Um, but hermeneutics, it's the science of interpretation, how we read. So I've got all these books on, on hermeneutics, the science of how we read, the art of how we read and interpret scripture, any, any written text. We all know the words on it, but I bet I could throw out quite a few scriptures, and even within this room, well, I kind of think it means this. Well, you could say that, but I kind of think it means that. Well, hang about, we're reading exactly the same words, but coming to, and we live with this all the time. Almost in all of those books that I read, there was absolutely nothing on the role of the Holy Spirit as I read the Bible. We just use certain techniques, how we understand things, how do we come to conclusions, but nothing wrong with that. But there was, there, there was a noticeable absence about the active role of the Holy Spirit in illuminating, that's the technical word, in illuminating the Word of, of God to us. And so that's always been part of my my Christian experience has been a, a very real, and for that I'm extremely thankful. But as time went on in sort of living in that part of, of the church, I increasingly um, was troubled by just a real sense of, as somebody's put it, what had we would distance ourselves from this kind of irrelevant, transcendent God out there, and we just got on with our daily lives and, and had little or no expectation that anything would ever happen to this kind of, what someone is, has described as a, a cosy imminence, a kind of comfortable, this kind of pet God that we could book to do nice things for us, and that if that God didn't do nice things for us and intervene in nice kinds of ways and we interpreted whatever happened to us, the nice things that happened to us as, as kind of God's blessing upon us, and we would gather for more kind of blessing here and blessing here and blessing here, an increasingly sense of what about out there and this just seems to be, we just seem to have become preoccupied um, with this, this God who seems conveniently to sort of reinforce everything that we would kind of like him to reinforce and be on side with. And it was, I remember um, hearing a minister challenged me a number of years ago and said, isn't it always interesting when God calls a minister on from one church to another, God always seems to call them on to a bigger church. Have you ever noticed that? It's always a bigger church. It's always got a bit more of a staff team. It's always got a bit more of a profile. It's always got a bit more going for it, maybe a slightly bigger pay packet. God never seems to call um, Christian ministers to a smaller church in a more 
struggling situation. Isn't that interesting? In a world that says the trajectory is always up and to the right, and you'll always get promoted, and you'll always get a bigger this and a slightly better that, and it's an interesting kind of parallel that whenever church members would get a promotion and a bigger car, would always interpret that as, as God's blessing upon them or would apply for that bigger job. So I'd never heard many church members come to me and say, I've sold all I have, I've given to the poor, and I'm just going to follow Jesus. There was this strange kind of relationship we had with that active presence of the Holy Spirit amongst us that as we all do, we kind of pick and choose the bits that we interpret as the Holy Spirit speaking to us and then not sure what to do with those awkward things that the Holy Spirit might be saying to us. It was a kind of a bless me, do what I want, um, encourage me. Somebody said the persecuted church never prays, God, why is this happening to us? Because they expect it. They're told in Scripture. You live faithfully in the ways of Christ in a hostile world. You're going to get a hard time. So they never pray, why is this happening to me? Their prayer is always... Lord, keep us faithful in the midst of our suffering and our struggles. How might we keep the faith? How might we remain faithful witnesses in the presence of those around us? Someone called Alan Crider wrote a book um, looking at what it was about the early church, this fragile group of marginalized, powerless people in the midst of empire, Roman Empire, who would, in a little over 300 years, would turn that empire upside down. And what he said was that the virtue that um, they cultivated more than anything amongst the life of the early church was the virtue of patience. The extraordinary capacity to endure because it was the natural conclusion they came to of the faithfulness of God amongst them that they could withstand anything, even unto death, even unto death. And it was their extraordinary patience that became most attractive to the people around them in a hostile and difficult world. It was the patience of these people, their capacity to endure even in the midst of. John, in our reading, uh, Linda, thank you for reading um, that and praying us through that. Um, John in that reading is recounting this part of this much longer. I've got anybody got a red letter edition of the Bible? This this happens to be a red letter. Of the, I've got a red letter. It's, they're great sometimes. Sometimes they're not good because somebody's made a decision about when the words of Jesus are actually spoken or not. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. But this is part. If for those of you can see on the front row, there's a lot of red letters. So this is just one part of of this longer farewell discourse that Jesus is giving. And at this point, he's preparing his disciples for his departing. Because they've got used to being around. And as they're still trying to work out who this person is, this Jesus of Nazareth, this, the one 
son of God, Messiah, still struggling with all this. He's preparing them for his departing and life without him. But I will not leave you as orphans because as the Father has sent me, so I will send, the Father will send the Spirit. And you will not be bereft. You will not be left as orphans. You will not need to try and live out this life that we have cultivated together by kind of drawing on distant memories in some kind of faded photo album of experiences as we try and hang on, cling on to what we used to know when we walked with Jesus. Nor will you have to kind of disappear into some kind of private world and have some kind of mystical sort of encounter, try and justify, um, generate some kind of internal thing. But there will be one who will come amongst you, who will be poured out upon you, the Spirit of God sent from the Father in heaven. And rather being confined in the embodied presence of Jesus, the Word made flesh, poured out on all flesh across all the nations, will be the presence of God with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I did a church weekend a couple of weekends ago up in Norwich, back on my home territory. It was great fun. And um, we looked at the Emmaus Road story at the end of Luke. I love the Emmaus Road story. Um, I'm going to say something now, and this will um, probably um, distract some of you for about the next 20 minutes. Um, but the whole of the Emmaus Road story from the moment of... starts with the... Res, they, they find that the tomb is empty, Jesus is risen from the dead, and, and then they start walking back, and the mysterious figure walks with them. For those of you who know the story, and they don't know it's Jesus, but it is Jesus. What's that all about? And he gives them the best Bible study, and yet they still don't see him. And then he feigns to go on, and they invite him in, and suddenly the, the, the guest becomes the host, and he breaks the bread, and then they see him for, a, for just a fraction of a second, and he vanishes, and then they run back to, we've seen the Lord, and etc., etc. All of that up to his ascension is set. You can look in a 24-hour period. The, 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 the chronology of that is, is um, yeah, it's all set in a 24-hour period. Luke, volume 2, which is, of course, the book of Acts, talks about Jesus being around for 40 days. No reference to that in his gospel at all. This is the first day of a new creation. This is what the world will look like when God says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. There will be weird times when you're walking along and some mysterious presence will be with you, no idea who it is, and then looking back you think, ah, now that makes sense. Jesus was with me all the time. Of course he was with you all the time. Because the Spirit of Jesus has been poured out upon you. And you will get fragments of revelation and he will be with you. Because... And I've got a PowerPoint. I've prepared a PowerPoint. Is, that going to, is my PowerPoint going to come up on there as well? Excellent. Oh. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Because there have been times in our lives of intimacy with God. Some of us struggle with that. I remember a men's meeting years ago in my first church. They used the word intimacy. It freaked them out. <laughs> Way kind of men's meeting do you think you're inviting me to? But the closeness of God. 
the deep realization that the God who created the heavens and the earth and the more we find out about Brian Cox and others tells us about how many universes and galaxies out there are hope rather than worrying about what science is going to come up with next. It just expands, just blows your imagination about how grand and glorious and amazing our God is and just the scale of creation. And comes and walks with us. And comes and lives with us. Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's a theologian called Sam Wells. Um, he's the vicar of um, St. Martin in the Fields, which is, if you ever look at a Trafalgar Square, so on the corner of Trafalgar Square, if you're looking at the National Gallery in front of you, off to the right, St. Martin in the Fields is that church that's there. Sam Wells wrote a book called The Nazareth Manifesto, and he asked the question, what's the most important word in theology, in Christian theology, what's the most important word? What do you think? Grace. Is that it? Best we can do, grace. Any, any other words? Sorry, love, hope, mercy, forgiveness, all great words, peace. He said the most important word in Christian theology is with. So with us, God. Theology is, the, is how we talk about God. And the Christians talk about God with us, Emmanuel. So the L bit on Emmanuel, E-L, that's the God bit. It's a Hebrew word. El Shaddai, El Elohim, etc. Imanu is with us. So literally, not God with us, it's the with us God. With us God. And just to kind of wind things up a little bit of a notch... Can we please get away from this kind of escapist Christian thing about God's going to take us away and, and we're going to be with him somewhere? The story of the Christian life is, is the God who will come and be with us, who is now with us by the Spirit and one day will come and be with us and God's dwelling will be upon the earth and he will make his home with us here. That's the hope, not that one day we might be missed away but that one day God will establish his rule and reign forever on earth and forever and eternally with us. With us. And so we live in the reality of that intimacy with God, that God is with us. Therefore, we need not fear that the mountains fall into the sea and nations rise and nations fall. And whoever walks through that door, bring it on. Bring it on. God with us. Increasingly, I've always worried about Christians who get very nervous about who walks into our door and what they might do and the impact that they might have as though, do we not believe that the presence of God with us might have a greater impact on them? That our young people living in the world out there, the Spirit of God who is with them might have a greater impact on the lives of the young people around them than our nervousness and anxiety about the lives of other young people on our young people. Who is the God in whom we believe and put our trust? He that is more than able. Greater is he that is in us than is in the world, than is against us. God with us. And so we live by the Spirit in this life of intimate relationship with the God who is from beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, my Redeemer, my Saviour, my Creator, 
my brother and friend. But out of that intimacy and out of that just peaceful place of rest and confidence, so I am changed. I am not the same. I am called to live a holy life, a life set apart for God. Not that... We need to recover the word holy because it's got hijacked by very serious Christians who have a very clear set of rules and that's what holiness looks like and um, they're very quick and they're very quick to tell you who is holy and who isn't holy, who's in and who's out and as I read the Gospels, I was having a conversation with somebody recently, um, you see the, pro- the problem we have with Jesus and the Gospels and his interaction with the holy people didn't go so well for the holy people who assumed out of their pride and their spiritual arrogance, well, of course they're in because they're holy. Just look at our lives. And those who were being repeatedly told that they were not holy, that they were not of any value to God, that they were not of, suddenly discovered that not only were they closer to God, but so often the women who came in their brokenness simply to be with Jesus Jesus would point at them and say, if you want to know what holiness looks like, this woman, this is what holiness looks like. A life poured out in love for Jesus. Holiness is not found in clever answers to difficult questions from people we bump into on the streets, although it you might have something to say, and I hope you do. Or being the guy who nails every Bible question at some pub quiz. Or you can recount this doctrine or that doctrine. The holiest of people amongst us are the people in whom we see love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the holy people of God. The people in whom I encounter the Spirit of God. The people, as someone once said to me, who do my soul good. These are the holy people of God. Sometimes their theology tracks mine. Annoyingly, sometimes it doesn't. And yet, because I spend time with them, and their confession is Jesus Christ, is my Lord, I love God more, and I love my neighbor more. And somewhere it's written, that's really all I need to worry about. To love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. And so the Spirit of God in me and encounters with others helps me to live this holy life. But calls us thirdly as a community to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But too much of my Christian experience has been me having my wonderful times with God and me living out 
When God, who is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creates and births something in his image, community it be, the church. And now the manifold wisdom of God through the church will be made known to the world. The church is not the optional bolt-on extra. If you've got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning, now you become a Christian, perhaps you'd like to come and join us. But when you become a Christian, in your new birth and baptism, you are born into this family. You are born into this community. This was always God's intention, that he would have a community witnessing to the world of the life of the kingdom. How do we know how to love except that we have people to love? And how do we know that God has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, if in this one place the world might see in the terrifying and appalling things that are going on in our world at the moment. Um, there's an American theologian um, who, who suggested, he's a pacifist, but he said maybe that be, might be too much for some people. But perhaps a, modern, a modest proposal to rid the world of war. He calls it this, a modest proposal. Perhaps if just the Christians would agree not to kill each other, We'll leave the other people to get on with it. But if just the Christians in the world would agree, we will not kill each other. But that in Christ, by his Spirit, we can find a way of resolving our differences without resorting to violence because of the life of God within us. This is the extraordinary gift of the community of faith to the world. This is the hope of the world. This is the possibility, the dream of people out there, that there might be a family, a community, a place where they can come that will not do violence to them, will not continue to oppress them, but will receive them that they might be healed and restored in the fullness of all that God has for them. God amongst us, Dwelling here by his Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we might then be sent out into the world. The God who goes before us. God is already out there. He's probably here as well. In fact, he is here as well. He's not just here. He rocks up in all kinds of places. If you read the Gospels, that's the problem the religious people have with Jesus. God, in Jesus, kept turning up in places he wasn't supposed to be. Do you not know who you're sitting with? Come away from him. Come away from her. If you know what's good for you, religious person. We know we're doing the right things out in the world in our lives when we make friends with the kind of people that Jesus made friends with and we upset the kind of people that Jesus upset out there. Now we're on to something. Now we're into the mission of God. But how many friends of ours, apologies for any tax collectors, because I know it's a true and honorable profession now, but in Jesus' day, not so much. How many of us know a prostitute? Or a leper, or whatever a leper equivalent in our society might be today. I've become his friend, I've become her friend. 
because of the Spirit of God who has changed my life, invited me to walk in this, the holiness of the life of Jesus. So this is where I tend to be. I was um, got slightly wound up by um, one or two people in my church who said we needed more Bible studies and more prayer meetings if we were going to change the world. We don't need more Bibles and more prayer meetings. I've got no problem with Bible studies and prayer meetings. I've built a career on the need for running organizations that have Bible studies and prayer meetings. But over time, I've got to realize, because the more I spend time in a Bible study and a prayer meeting, the less chance there is of me finding myself with difficult people in awkward places and broken lives, and I'm supposed to find how to love and interact with them and to be the presence of Christ to them. When I went to my last church, Herne Hill, in South London, because I lived in a Christian bubble most of my time, I'd had enough of it and I knew it wasn't right. And so I made the decision to join a local community choir that had absolutely nothing to do with church or Christians or anything like that at all. My discipleship, that was where my discipleship was formed. I don't need another Bible study about how to be a better disciple. I just need to go and be a disciple. I just need to go be in the presence of what we need to do. I need to close the Bible sometimes and walk out and be the Bible. Be the living witness. Be the enfleshed, in my fragile way, that which Jesus was. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God didn't send a book, didn't send a range of ideas. He sent a human being, a spirit-empowered human being to witness to the world that God is. And God dwells. And so therefore, finally, we are that prophetic, that disruptive presence in the world, that awkward presence in the world, that there is a God against the God, the prince of darkness who dwells in this world. And so there will be clashes and we will confront the gods of this world and we refuse, except that we might walk in the way of the Lamb and live cross-shaped, cruciform lives. The world will not dictate out to the gods of this world, the powerful people of this world will not dictate to us, the pharaohs and the, will not grind our humanity into the ground and they will not grind the humanity of others into the ground either. We will lift up the poor and the broken and we will speak out for those who have no voice because we can't help ourselves. Because the Spirit of God lives in us and has changed us forever. Because we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe that the Spirit is here with us now. And therefore we go into the world empowered. For all that God has called and equipped us to. Lights to the world. Soul to the earth. This is who we are. This is who you are. Go, therefore. Amen.